You have reached the Geek Elite. Good luck. In my lifetime, I expect to see three, four, perhaps even more women on the high court bench. Women not shaped from the same mold, but of different complexions. All right. Welcome back to our season two. Dear listeners, this is the United States of Women's podcast. Mm-hmm. United States of Women? Yes. I can say this right. It's really early this morning. <laughs> is it? It's not technically early. It just feels early. Yeah, well, Jessica didn't I have a didn't, did, Jessica and I did have a 12-hour road trip day yesterday. So. Yeah. So. <laughs> we're so. like, let's wake up early and do some recording. That'll be a great idea. And then we woke up and we're like, we're pushing this back, right? Like, just, just a, we're just like, just a bit, right? That's I can't good. get my brain to function yet. So, this is season two. Uh, last season, we did the lovely state of Delaware. Yay! The first ratified state. The first ratified Surprise. state. So, in holding with our theme, we are doing the second ratified state, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, which I thought was the first ratified state. You I mean, would feel like would be the first ratified state because everything happened there, right? Like <laughs> everything, most everything did happen in Pennsylvania, and it has made this season really hard for me. Actually, I think we may do a bonus episode with a bunch of honorable mentions where I just kind of run through like some pretty awesome because be literally fun. my list started out with a solid twenty that I was like. I could do an episode on any one of these women. <laughs> and then I was like, I really can't. That's no. too long a season. And every state has some pretty amazing women. Um, Tina Fey is from Pennsylvania. Yay! So you've got, you know, Tina Fey is probably one of our bigger contemporaries. There's a whole list of them. We will do an honorary episode where I will run through some of the bigger names. Because that's just, we should do that. We should. We should do that. And I think that's, this is, you are now getting a behind the scenes look, dear listener, mm-hmm. <laughs> of how a podcast gets made. So, with that, I'm going to jump into our first woman. All right? And I'm, we're going back. We're going back, back, back. Back, back, back. Back, back, back. But I want to start with an overview. What do you know about patents? Um, I know it's a thing that if you have an invention or an idea, you run to get the patent on it so that you can get rich off of it. (laughs) Whether or not that idea works for you or not, or for somebody else who has to buy that patent from you, like, That is a pretty (laughs) solid summary of what a patent is. That is, that is an excellent, yes. So... Patents, particularly in the U.S., Mm -hmm. are governed by the U.S. Patent Code. And the initial creation of the U.S. Patent Department was established in 1790 by Congress. It was one of the first departments made. Okay. And it is one of the few departments required in the U.S. or permitted in the U.S. Constitution. The government shall have the authority to establish rules and regulations regarding the inventions and securing the rights of inventors. Okay. So, 
pretty, you know, it's right up there with USPS, which I know everybody's like up in arms about. Hey, USPS <laughs> built our nation. It right? was literally like the first government. <laughs> so you got you got USPS <laughs> and you got patents. Yeah. And that's, you know, like they're serious buttresses. Mm-hmm. But I'd like to talk a little bit about the history of patents themselves. Okay. Okay. So the first recorded recollection of patents and not going to lie, I'm hoping we're going to maybe try and figure out how to like do some social media for this podcast. Uh, Probably should. <laughs> if any of our listeners out there want to assist us, it would be greatly appreciated. But I am... We're I, elder millennials. We don't know how to do a post every single day. Yeah. So uh, I came across uh, USC's Gould School of Law mm-hmm. has a really fantastic infograph of the history of patent law, because there is, there's a lot, there's mm-hmm. a lot. So we have to go all the way back to Greek col- to the Greek colonies. So before Greece became a federation of states, like we're talking like when they were like separated between mm-hmm. their islands. So are we talking like Peloponnesian area, like when Athens was fighting Spartan, or probably, even before that? Probably even before that. We're talking 500 BCE. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't have timelines in my head. I'm going to assume... So, around the Peloponnesian era, not... Okay. We're somewhere in that that time zone. Like, where Not going to lie, Greek and Roman history is not my passion. Do you know, like, because you're more the historian, do you know, like, when the Battle of 300 happened? Oh, God, no. Okay, all right. Because I know that's (laughs) slightly before the Peloponnesian War. (laughs) Because they were kind of friends at that time. Yeah. (laughs) But, so we are in the Greek colony of Cyprus... Cyprus. Ooh, okay. Okay. And the first recorded information regarding that some regarding something that would look like a patent. Mm-hmm. Because a patent is essentially a monopoly. Okay? It's the exclusive right to create and profit from that, something. Yeah. Okay. Like that a, is that design or that that is the It's the, like a copyright for a book basically. Yes. Too. So well, I mean, the patents, as as a concept, break down into what we consider patents in the U.S., copyrights and trademarks. They're all... Okay. But patents is just kind of the exclusive right. So, in 500 BCE, chefs in Cyprus could be granted a monopoly for a year for creating particular dishes. So, if you invented a new chicken dish... Okay. You were granted a patent, well, essentially a patent for it as a monopoly. So you didn't have to share your recipe. So you didn't have to share your recipe. Like, would someone have to, like, pay you for your recipe? Yes. Man, that's nice. But so the the first cut, like, it all comes back. It all (laughs) starts with food. (laughs) Food and money. Like, the world revolved around these two things, and usually how they interplay. Yeah. So, this is the first intellectual property protection reference in history that matches with our historical records. There is most likely something from other cultures that just hasn't been kind of widely circulated Mm -hmm. in Western civilization, but... For now, we're going with this. So, chefs in Cyprus were the first to receive patents. Chefs in Cyprus. Did did they say, like, what the first... 
like what the recipe was or they did not okay (laughs) that would be interesting i did not get quite that deep (laughs) oh darn i that see that's i would have gotten that deep i'm like i have to find out what this (laughs) what was so good that you had to pay the chef (laughs) i i think it's one of those things we have you know scraps of tablets that indicate monopolies but no clue on dates or yeah any of those because then in 257 BCE and I'm going to butcher this name Vitriasus Vitrophesis Vitrophesis a Roman judge in Alexandria okay first established legal precedent charging poets for copying other poets work he charged them with crime for copying work wow okay so we've gone from chefs to poets mm-hmm. we have not yet gotten to actually inventing anything <laughs> yeah but i i do like that these are also basically the foundation of what makes a culture like a very yeah. set culture is your food and your artistry and your writings Exactly. So we better get our culture right and get the person that actually needs the... Yep. So from that point forward, through basically the fall of the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. Roman jurists continually discussed ownership interests regarding intellectual work and differentiating, differentiating between ownership, such as like owning a painting mm-hmm. and owning a table that the painting is standing on. Okay. Now, quick question, Mm because I kind of sort of know a little bit about ancient Rome and how they had this, um, like, start of Patreons, in which Mm -hmm. it would be like a senator or or somebody would house an artist or a sculptor, and some of the credit went to that Patreon as well, because that Patreon is paying for that poor artist to, <laughs> to, to make things yes. and gives him like his marble and stuff that an artist typically can't afford so does the artist actually get the patent do you know or is it like the patreon and artist combo well, i'm curious so that's that's where that question and discussion comes in okay do you own what's made from the marble marble or do you own the marble because the patreon would own the marble, the marble but the idea and what was created out of it would be owned by the artist the artist okay so now you've got these questions of how to divvy it up so the patreon wouldn't have the authority to recreate that marble okay but he would own the structure the structure itself correct okay only the artist would be allowed to recreate it or authorize other recreations okay so if like another senator was like, "Oh, I love that marble you made. If I give you this marble, <laughs> will you mine? Will you?" Yes. Okay. All right. So the the physical, th- you know, and so that's the question: Do you own the table, or do mm-hmm. you own the painting that's sitting on the table? <laughs> so the first, however, official patent was issued June ninth, fourteen twenty one, to architect. Filippo Brunicelli, Brunicelli, recognizing his invention on uh, an architectural design. 
so the statute was written into uh, Florence law. So it was a statute statute passed by the Florence Council in Italy. <coughs> okay. Granting him authorization and a patent over that architectural design. Oh, he's the one who did the Cathedral of Santa Maria Correct. in Florence. Okay, I was like, I know that guy's name. <laughs> you know the name. And I'm like, what did he do? The The dome. Yep. That beautiful dome in Florence. So okay. that is the first, that dome is the first okay. official patent issued June 9th, 1421. He did a lot of beautiful things. Oh my gosh, I, so that's my one thing looking at like ancient architecture and it's just how... <laughs> it's so beautiful and it's still standing well yep. not all of it but like still like just yeah. so at this point we've now moved into patent systems in medieval Europe which makes sense because that was like a huge boom on mm-hmm. invention and thinking and well and they were initially granted for the most part by monarchs or sovereigns since mm-hmm. most of Europe was monarchies at that point mostly mm-hmm. by monarchs okay and they provided a good method for sovereigns to make money without having to tax the people. Because you paid for a grant of a monopoly. You paid for a patent. We still pay filing fees for patents. Mm-hmm. But if you wanted an exclusive monopoly, you paid the crown for it. Well, now the crown doesn't have to tax the people. And... The merchant class, the nobles, are happy to pay the crown for mm-hmm. the exclusive use to sell this thing yeah. to everybody else. And it continues on in this method until the end of the of the Elizabethan era. So, at the end of Queen Elizabeth the First's reign. English courts, and more importantly, the English Parliament, mm-hmm. starts to restrict the sovereign's authority mm. to grant patents because they recognize it's a way to control the markets. Correct. <laughs> yeah. So it became part of the catalyst for the Civil War in England. In 1624, because of this issue of who's going to get to control the authorization of patents, what extent do they have, how can you grant monopolies? I like it. We can't talk this out, so we're just going to go ahead and battle until we, until we figure it until out. Until we figure it out. Just. So, in the U.S., until 1790, mm-hmm. there is no, no formal national system for patents. Prior to the American Revolution, some colonies granted patents themselves, mm-hmm. and some did not. If you wanted a patent that was good throughout the colonies, you mm-hmm. had to go to England. And ah. at this point, although oh, the authorities restricted, King George is still the only person who can issue patents. And there's not really any set rules as to when he's going to issue patents. It's just kind of like whenever he feels like it and Parliament doesn't get upset about it. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so this is the kind of era we are in. Okay. Okay, and so this brings us to 
the mother of grits. Okay, and this is going to be grits. Like, like southern Gira, grits. Like southern, like, like southern like grits. shrimp and grits and yep. eggs and grits and yep. buttery grits and cheesy grits and... And all those grits. I'm going to go ahead and stop on my, like, bubble gump <laughs> <laughs> grit. <laughs> yes. So, this is going to be... We'll get into the contention about my, my statement of that. Because she's really more like the white mother of grits. Okay. That so so we're going to get into it. Makes sense. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, of course. Sibylla Wrightington. Sibylla Wrighton. Born most likely in Bermuda in about 1676. Okay. Okay. So that's when we're at no clear records because it's 1676 and she's not a monarch. <laughs> so, yeah, she's not important enough. <laughs> she, do, she doesn't necessarily qualify. So, circa 1676. She is the second of seven children. Good number. Right? And she had and they are all daughters. Bad number. <laughs> yeah. I don't know until you get that seven sons and then... Right? Then it's a magic story. <laughs> then it's a magic story. <laughs> anyway, she was born to William and Sarah Wrighton, who were Quakers. Okay. In the colony of West New Jersey, which would be Bermuda. Okay, cool. Because, so, yeah, you said Bermuda, and all I thought was Bermuda Triangles, but it's an early Sunday morning, so that's, I was like, um, I don't think she was born there. <laughs> so, she, yeah. And in 1687, they moved from Bermuda to Burlington Township, New Jersey, right along the Delaware River. Mm-hmm. Okay. And New Jersey was, like, the hub for Quakers, yep. so. So, her first, the first historical record we have of her is in 1692 so at that point she's 16 if I can do math I think I can do math 16 where she testifies as a witness on her father's behalf in New Jersey courts no idea what for (laughs) clearly not big enough importance that there was a whole bunch of records on it but she did testify as a witness which was relatively rare since she was female. Yeah. And then in 16, somewhere between 1693 and 1696, again, because she wasn't important enough to need real solid records, Mm -hmm. she married Thomas Masters, a prosperous Quaker merchant and landowner. Okay. Good marriage, it sounds like. I mean, like, not necessarily that he was a good guy, but, like, at that time, you really had to think about what your husband was doing in life. Yeah. Well, (laughs) actually turned out to be definitely one of our, one of our first, uh, I would definitely call him a feminist ally. Yay! And and we will, we will get to why. Good marriage, then. Good marriage. Great marriage. So, they had four children. Two girls, two boys. (laughs) He lucked out much better than her father did. I know. Wow. (laughs) Uh, who all seem to have lived to adulthood. Mm-hmm. Again, Successful. real rare. 
So he had come to, so they came to Philadelphia in 1685. Or he had come to Philadelphia in 1685 prior to their marriage. So after they got married, she moved to Philadelphia. And in 1702, Masters built her what was contemporarily called a stately house on on the Philadelphia riverfront. Described by James Logan as the most substantial fabric in the town. He also had an additional plantation or quote-unquote country house in Green Spring. Called Green Spring. Okay, out in Okay. Yeah. Mm. He became a prominent political figure in Philadelphia. He was an alderman. Mayor of Philadelphia from 1707 to 1708, and Provincial Council from 1720 to 1723. Now, you might ask, what happened between 1708 and 1720? Because that's a, that's that's a like pretty solid gap. Yep. So here's what happened. In 1712, Masters, Sybil, Sibylla, Masters, Sibylla Masters, noticed... That so at the time, the way s- colonists were grinding cornmeal mm-hmm. into flat, grinding corn into cornmeal, mm-hmm. was to take two large stones in a circular matter, yeah, and kind of grind it down, yeah. Well, Sibylla noticed that the Native Americans nearby mm-hmm. didn't grind; they pounded. pounded, yeah. And she was like, "Hmm, they seem to have." A lot more success with that. So she invented a mill that instead of grinding, used small hammers to pound out the corn in an up and down motion. Okay, so she invented a machine, a mill, Mm -hmm. to pound out, wow. To pound out corn. Okay. And when you do that, you get a slightly different texture on the cornmeal. Mm-hmm. Okay. And she called this Tuscora rice. Okay. Which has, which is now known as grits. Grits. Huh. Okay. So, in 1712, she then, since Philadelphia was, since Pennsylvania was not issuing patents... Mm-hmm. She requested leave from the Freedom House, which is the Quaker group, okay, to move to London. Pick oh. up her husband and move to London so that she could request a patent from King George III. And King George I. Or King George I, sorry. We're still in King George I. Okay. Haven't gotten to third yet. Okay. So she picks up and she moves her family in 1712. Okay. okay. It takes her three years <laughs> of requesting from King George I to be issued a patent. But you see, Sibylla was not inclined to just kind of sit around the house while she waited for things. So instead, she opened a shop in London. Okay. And established a new method for weaving. Um, sorry, I'm looking for the proper names of the leaves palmetto leaves palmetto leaves okay Mm -hmm. so straw and palmetto leaves interlocking them to create a stronger more clean line straw hat 
I feel like that was something that was probably already done by a native person. Probably. Yeah. I feel... Like I said, this is going to be a controversial. Uh, yeah. Like I was like, as as much as it's great that she got these patents, or at least made this invention on grits. Like the invention is what she like looked at what they were doing and was like, I can invent something that can do that better. But yeah. like the palmetto one is definitely like I saw some native person doing this <laughs> and I copied it. And I copied it. Yes. So she started making these hats and selling them mm-hmm. uh, in a shop in London, and they took off like wildfire they were just super they, they were hot cakes everybody loved them okay i, I hate that part of history too because right? we still kind of do it it's kind of like our dream catcher thing like how yeah. dream catchers are now kind of like basic white girl when it's actually no it has like its own tradition within tribes of native americans like you should be using it in the traditional way you should be buying it from native americans like just Yep. But no, you can go find it in like Hobby Lobby and just. Yeah. So three years later, so she in quote unquote invents this new weaving as well, submits a second request for a patent. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So after three years of King George taking his sweet time on November 25th, 1715, letters patent number 401 was granted under the privy seal to, of course, Thomas Masters for the sole use and benefit of a new invention found out by Sibylla, his wife, for cleaning and curing Indian corn and growing in the several colonies of America. That's about right. (laughs) So... Because at the time, women were were property. Were property, whatever (laughs) we did. See, that's where I go to the Roman one. Like, did (laughs) the artist get the credit, the patent, or did the Patreon get? Yep. Because the Patreon basically owned the artist. Yeah. In a way. So, So, there is, in fact, an illustrated version of the patent showing the device was for pulverizing maize by stamping rather than the usual grinding process. Okay. So she continued to stick around for a little bit because in February 18th, seven, February 18th, 1716, Sybil's Masters secured again under her husband's name. That's like a building. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. I, I had to look up the picture. So this nope, is where, absolutely. yeah, we do need to get a social media so we can post these things. So we can show you guys these fun pictures. I know. It's, it's, it's like it looks like a giant windmill, but instead of because windmills were typically to like mill down with like the rug, the stone to yeah. mill down like flour or wheat, and so this so one this is one more lifted with, a hammer and lifted dropped a hammer it. and dropped it onto corn over and over. Okay, so it's a massive building. Yeah, Just, it's, like it's a huge, which was mill. kind of what I was picturing, but I wanted to be sure because that's mills. It's like yep. people just think, oh, they're just like little. No, they they do have a function. Like yeah. <laughs> Big mill. So on February eighteenth, seventeen sixteen, she was the her husband was issued patent number four hundred three. This one for a new way of working and straining in straw and staining in straw, and the plat and leaf of the palmetto tree, and covering and adorning hats and bonnets in such manner as was never before done or practiced in England, or any of our plantations. <laughs> Meaning she was the first white woman. Yes, <laughs> basically. She. So the only reason we actually know 
of Sibylla, Wrighton, is because her husband, when they came back to the U.S., never took credit for the inventions. Aww. He continually in public informed the world that it, they were Sibylla's inventions. My wife did it. My wife did I it. Because I love her. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was a Quaker, though, and it should be noted that Quakers were fairly... Correct. Liberal, although people, I would say, for especially for the times, they were... Yeah. That's why they lived in New Jersey, and as everybody knows from Hamilton, everything's legal in New Jersey, so... Yep. <laughs> but, so, they returned... In May of 1716 to Philadelphia, where Thomas, on behalf of Sibylla, petitioned the Provincial Council to grant the permission for recording and publishing Sibylla's patents. So she may or may not have been the first female American inventor, Mm -hmm. but she's the first one that we know about because of... The she, surrounding commentary on the inventions. Okay. Because, like, it's implied that at the time, there could be men getting the credit for their wives, and then those men were like, yeah, no, this was my idea. Like, not going to put your name out there. And the wives went, like, you suck, but... <laughs> there's like, nothing I can there's do. There's <laughs> nothing I can do, because I'm a woman in the 1700s. Like, just. Exactly. Exactly. So, Thomas then took Sibylla's idea. Mm-hmm bought a mill, converted it with her patent, and began to pound out corn. Unfortunately, it did not particularly take off because the texture of Tuskegee rice, grits, Mm -hmm. was not very popular in Britain, which was your major export market in the colonies. Yeah. What are those English now? But (laughs) however, I love grits. It did become exceptionally popular with American colonists. Yeah. Okay. So, the patent for the mill, not so successful in her lifetime, super successful later on in life. The patent for weaving and creating hats, Mm -hmm. super successful in her lifetime, not really relevant now. I couldn't even find a picture of the hats. Did you manage to? No. So there was never any documentation. So there was no illustrated patent for the weaving. Okay. Like there was for the mill. It's weaving. But I was like trying to think like palmetto hats. Like I should be able to find like the kind that she made. And I keep on getting Dutch board games. I don't even know why. (laughs) I'm like, what is this? Yeah. So that is. So they continued to live on in Philadelphia. And Sibylla died on August 23rd, 1720, and is buried in Philadelphia. Well, or just outside of Philadelphia. Do we know if that stately manor that her husband built is still standing today? or At least not under the same name. Okay. But so. records, we have no idea. Correct. Okay. Because we're, we're talking... Such sketchy records. <laughs> I know. It, there also were plenty so, of fires, too. and just <laughs> The controversy around Tuskegee Rice at the time, we have different issues with it now, because obviously now it's her appropriating something that she was seeing Native American women doing. But mm-hmm. at the time, the other big controversy was 
several people started claiming that it cured tuberculosis. That's with anything that's newly invented, though. And tuberculosis (laughs) was a problem. And also tuberculosis was a disease that we've been living with with a long long. time. But we had no idea why people died from it or got over it or... Oh, the history of tuberculosis is like there's actually fun one to delve into because it's um, just so this podcast will kill you does an excellent episode on tuberculosis. Okay, cool. This yeah, podcast so will kill you. if anybody has an interest in learning about other things that will kill you and tuberculosis. I assume they mentioned the tuberculosis hospitals, which were basically like asylums in which yes. you had to live like strapped down to a bed because that was the only thing that would help you survive. And people were like, no, no, you need to go outside. Like, that's good yeah. for you. <laughs> no, you, you need to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, yeah, so it was first described in 1844 as a medical marvel. And a cure for tuberculosis. It's, it's just pounded down corn, guys. <laughs> like, Which has been thoroughly the dismissed. Same thing. So, but you can thank Sybil Ma- Sibylla Masters at the very least for bringing colonists around the concept of grits. <laughs> yeah, she she at the very least introduced it to white people. <laughs> she she introduced grits to to white people. <laughs> By taking it from native people. Yeah. I mean, now it's like the like must-have of southern breakfasts and just mm, shrimp and grits. Now I want shrimp and grits. But, um. <laughs> so we're going to have to take a break now from recording so Jessica can go have shrimp and grits. Uh, <laughs> but, but that is our first foyer into mm-hmm. the lovely world of the women of Philadelphia. I... Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, Pennsylvania. (laughs) Pennsylvania in general. Yeah. Not going to lie, most of them at some point are in Philadelphia. I mean, because it's the hub. Everything kind kind of like most of our women from last season at some point ended up in Wilmington, Delaware. Like, it's just. (laughs) That is what it is. For uh, research purposes, obviously, Wikipedia was a solid jumping off point because that's where I go. Uh, 18th century colonial and early American women uh, article on Quaker inventor Sibylla Wrighton Masters mm-hmm. and Patents for Women, which was published on in November 2019. Gave a lot of really great information. Uh, Pennsylvania People did an excellent article on the colonial inventor Sibylla Masters. And then for the actual patent information, a brief history of patent law in the United States by Lads and Perry, and then the, US, the USC School of Law, their lovely infomercial, their infograph on patent history okay. for their international law, LLM. Awesome. So that's most of, if you want to research more, there was, there was quite a bit, it was a lot to kind of pare down and figure out how to best present this, but that is Sibylla Masters. Sibylla Masters. Join us back next week, because we'll have 
more amazing women. Mm-hmm. Also, I've mentioned Patreon quite a bit in this. And we have a modern version of Patreon <laughs> on the internet in which Geek Elite Media is now a part of. So yeah. if you would like some special side episodes, we have extra contact, early, early content on there too. Join us on our Patreon. There we go. And Jessica, where can people find you if they want to talk to you about the history of Patreon? If you want to talk to me about the history of Patreon, the easiest way would probably be on my Twitter as JM Bailey Writes. I'm on a couple other things as JM Bailey Writes as well, if you want to find me on other social medias. There you go. And you can find me with the rest of Geek Elite Media at geekelitemedia.com, our Facebook page, forward slash Geek Elite Media. Archived episodes of this podcast and other podcasts are on our website, geekleetmedia.com. You can also find us on any of your podcatchers. Please rate, review, and subscribe so that way we can be found by other people. Because mm-hmm. uh, these are pretty awesome women. And I know I'm going, there are a ton of really awesome women. Do want to remind everybody I am trying to have us do women that you may not know. Mm-hmm. as opposed to the ones that really stand out. So, But in that Honorable Mentions podcast at the end of the season, I'll go ahead and shout out to all of the amazing women of Philadelphia. Yeah. But until next time, this is the United States of Women saying, always remember to geek, geek out. This concludes our broadcast. Beep.